there's very few, if any, new communities being built. In fact, it's the only asset class that has a diminishing supply. So there's more mobile mm -hmm. home parks across the country that either get redeveloped for higher and better use because they were maybe built 50 years ago in the outskirts of town. Now they're in the middle of path of progress or that just simply gets shut down. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my Great to Wealth listeners. Today, we have a good pleasure of speaking with Kevin Bupp. I've been following this man for a while. I'll let him do his own introduction, but he's known as the god of mobile homes. In the investing world, he really got deep into that. Of course, beyond since then, he has expanded his portfolio. With Kevin, uh, with a further ado here, welcome to the show. Socket, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome, man. Hey, Kevin, I've given you the title of Godfather of uh, Mobile Home. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right title or not, but that's for you or for me. Give our listeners an introduction of who you are, what you do, and then we'll go into the migration journey. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I could dig that title. I guess the godfather of mobile home parks would have you. We've been yeah. doing it long enough. I guess that, that's I'll very catch fitting. Up. But I'll catch up. Yeah, I'll try to keep it fairly condensed. But I, you know, I've been a full-time investor my entire adult life. I always like to joke and say that I've never had a, a real job outside of tending bar while I was going through college and started my real estate journey during college and uh, bought my first property at the age of 20. And and really haven't looked back since. Uh, you know, I've had a few other businesses outside of real estate, but real estate's always been the core. It's mm -hmm. always been the kind of the bread and butter, the foundation of everything I've done. And I've started with single family, like a lot of people do, built up quite a substantial holdings, about 125 single family properties, uh, my mid 20s, and then started buying multifamily property, really started expanding my horizons a little bit, uh, exploring outside of the model that was taught to me by my original mentor, uh, which was he was just a small time single family residential investor, really started expanding my reach into other types of commercial real estate. First being multifamily, it was a very easy transition. Yeah. And then from that point in time to where we're at today, I feel like I've had my hands on most of the different types of asset classes. Personally, I've got uh, investments today in self-storage, medical office, a lot of multifamily, industrial, um, there's probably a few others, uh, assisted living, mm -hmm. but that most of those are passive nowadays. I've owned different types of real estate throughout the years on an active side. What I realize is that residential just, it makes sense to me. Uh, the fundamentals are much easier to understand than that of some of the other asset classes I just mentioned there. And more specifically, I found our pathway to mobile home parks, which is, it's mm -hmm. kind of its own niche, right? It's a sub niche of, of uh, residential multifamily real estate. I found that path back in late 2010, early 2011. And Bought my first mobile home park, didn't know anything about the space. Um, you know, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of carryover from residential multifamily, but also it's got a number of its own unique nuances associated with it and uh, really fell in love with that space. And we've been buying them ever since. At present time, we, we've got assets in, in 14 different states throughout the Northeast, Southeast, and then a few select Midwestern markets. And then outside of that being our core focus socket, we always love to be contrarian investors. We like to kind mm -hmm. of go against the grain a little bit. I try to find underserved niches that represent um, outsized uh, potential returns. And so one of the other asset classes that we recently started delving into about, about three and a half years ago has been parking. And so parking lots and parking garages in, in very strategic markets, target markets. And so um, outside of mobile home parks, we also own parking assets. And so those are kind of our two core focuses that, that we're invested in today. Again, I've enjoyed the journey, loved the ride. It's been a lot of fun, bumps along the way, but uh, it's been a great journey thus far. No, that's awesome, Kevin. There's so many nuggets in there. Like, so let me just kind of synthesize that. You knew one of the very few people who knew right from the college 
You want to be an investor when you grow I, up. Actually, I, I need to add another layer of that story in there. So that is actually not the case. Second joke of this is that I always say that real estate found me. I didn't find it. And so I feel uh -huh. very blessed and grateful that it came into my life when it did. You know, I was at a point in my life, socket, going to school and just not, I knew I wanted to do big things. I just literally had no idea what it was. Just happened to meet a local businessman you know, that was a real estate investor, became friends with him and, and saw what he did. So he, he lived a very different lifestyle than what I grew up with. I didn't we grew up in a very middle of the road family. You know, we had one family vacation a year. We didn't go without. We didn't have a lot. We didn't have little. Right. Like it was it was all relative. It was good. I had a good upbringing. But when I met David, uh, just his lifestyle seemed very different than yeah. that of what I felt was the norm of my parents working nine to five and not really have a lot of flexibility and extra money and things like that. So yes, I did not find real estate that found me, but when it found me, I knew that it was the right fit. This I knew it. this is it. Like this, I can wrap my arms around this. This is exciting. Like I, I can't stop thinking about it. I read every book I could on the topic. I worked for free for David for a year and a half, literally in between classes and tending bar evenings. My friends made fun of me. They're like, what the heck are you doing? You're working for this old guy. You know, he's not even paying you. And I wasn't going and hanging out at night with them, weekends, whatever. <laughs> I was out in the field, literally running errands for David. And uh, and through that year and a half, I learned so much and uh, and just really blessed that pivotal moment happened in my life back then. Now, that's awesome. So, Kevin, one question that everyone will have, right? It's kind of like from zero to 125 single family. Owners. That's in itself is an amazing journey. Right. It seemed like you didn't necessarily have a whole lot of capital to begin with to go to that point. How did you That's make right. that pivot? And what was your mental state when you learned from David the tricks of the trade, but you also at the some at least at the initial stages thinking about, I don't have the cash. Yeah. Right. Uh, you may that, have had it and maybe my assumption is wrong. So you correct me. No, no, I, I didn't. I, I had 7,000 when I bought that first property. When I finally got the courage to buy that first property, I again, after kind of working with David and around him, I got to meet a lot of his uh, connections. He had private lenders and people he had established mm -hmm. relationships with for many, many years. So I became kind of part of his business and was able to leverage some of his relationships. But I learned $7,000 to my name that I had saved up, you know, slinging drinks at night. Right. And that's what I used in addition to leveraging a, a private lender that I had met through David to, to buy that first investment property. But very quickly, I learned that my model or what David's model, it needed some tweaking in order for it to be fitting for me. And David was at a very different stage of his journey. He had been doing this for a couple of decades. And mm -hmm. so he always bought assets with the intent of holding them and literally right. as long-term rentals. And he would do the, you know, what now is coined as the Burr strategy, but you know, he had capital he was working with. And so I realized very quickly that first rental I bought, my intent was to hold it for a long term. I realized it was going to take a very, very long time <laughs> for me to save up enough of that cash flow, which is measly a few hundred dollars a month in right. addition to attending bar to ever buy another one. And like, this would be a slow journey. And so right. What I did is I made a, a pivot at, at that point and realized I really learned how to find deals following some of the methods he had taught me. And so I started having the wholesale deals. I learned the wholesale business. I started wholesaling, you know, every two or three properties I would wholesale and then I would keep one or, you know, like that was kind of the right. formula. I would wholesale as many as I needed to stack some cash and then I'd keep a property. And then you know, over time, I continued to build private lender relationships, banking relationships. And it got to the point to where I was able to leverage you know, other people's money, OPM, much more than my own money, which allowed me to start scaling at a greater pace than just, you know, one every couple of months or one, you know, a year or something like that. So it really ramped up within like the third year of the business. Uh, it took me mm -hmm. a couple of years to really get my bearings and really understand the flow and how to scale, but also how to efficiently manage these assets as well. As I was scaling, that was another challenging time. And that's really the first, I'd say six years of my investing journey became 
how do I build a portfolio of cash flowing assets and leveraging the relationships that I built over time? But then I, I realized, Socket, that at some point during that journey, I realized that, uh, you know, and it's very different today. There isn't as much technology that existed back then as it relates to property management. There was a ton of inefficiencies in managing single family properties, especially spread amongst like five different counties where we own them. And uh, mm -hmm. we had leasing agents running around, maintenance guys running around. It was incredibly inefficient. That's what kind of drove me to look at the multifamily model, which I realized had much more scales of economy and efficiencies yeah. underneath one roof versus spread out amongst, again, you know, many, many miles in many counties. Thanks for sharing that journey, Kevin, because this is, you're basically open the kahuna here, kind of like, you know, going from Axe to Rich's story. So, which is interesting. Help me understand the mindset you were going through. Right? So it took three years to scale. Great. Which is, so of course you didn't become an overnight success it took you to become an overnight success it took you that much time so help us understand that mindset you were traversing through that stage what were your fear if you can recall i think that. initially you know we all go through changes within our life like what's important to me today is very different than what was important to me back then i wasn't married didn't have children to me it was more material things you know I, there, there's mm -hmm. things growing up and that i saw that people had that i wanted and when i got that first taste of that i could make some decent sized checks um by by doing real estate deals like that was my mindset of like, how can I get the house? Can, how can I get the vacations and you know all the material items that were important to me at that point in my life? And so that's what really drove me initially. Mm -hmm. um, and then I really found the love for it. You know, so like the money was the first driver, but then I really found that I was good at it, and I just I really thoroughly enjoyed kind of the art of the deal. Right, I enjoyed working with sellers, working with buyers. I enjoyed taking an ugly property, making it pretty and, right. and watching the smile on the faces of those that either rented it or bought it from us. And so right. I really enjoyed every aspect of it and really grew a passion for, I call it the game, right? But I mean, like to me, it became part of my life. It became ingrained in every part of me. So, and as I grew older, I got married, got children now. And so my needs and wants and desires are in my mindset's very different now than what it was back then. I still have that same passion, that same fire for the business and the industry. But for me now, it's all about how do I buy myself more time and buy right. myself more freedom to spend as much time as I'd like with my family, with my children and, and create memories and experiences with them via vacations or just special moments that I think others tend to miss, right? Professionals that are working 70, 80 hours a week that don't have flexibility in their career, their jobs, they, they tend to miss out on some of the special moments. I don't want to miss those. And so now that is of the most importance to me and real estate allows me to, to achieve that. And I'm assuming that was one of the biggest trigger for you, Kevin, to continue investing passively, right? Because of course the amount of work and the amount of effort was involved in beginning of fix and flips to where you are now. At that time, you didn't necessarily have the capital, so you had to put your time in. Looking back, if you had the capital, I'm assuming you will try to figure out an efficient way of deploying that capital into some passive that gives you the cash mm -hmm. flow and maybe a few actors that gives you the freedom because now what you're after, it seems, is freedom of time, freedom of choices, freedom right. to do what you want to do, but not foregoing the wealth. Right? That's an important one because, yeah, you can quit your job and be a beach bum and do whatever, but then your wealth's <laughs> not growing. But we're, That's not, right. we're basically saying... We don't want to part away from growing our wealth, but we also want to find that time. Yeah, I want, to, I want my money to work for me while I'm sleeping. But also another important thing to hit on there is that we try to stay in our lane. And our lane for a long time was mobile home parks, you know, for the mm -hmm. last decade plus. It's, and it's really hard to be great at all things. And so we stuck to that lane for a very long time. And it, it was a really difficult decision for us to even consider bringing another asset class into our active fray, like what we do right. on a day-to-day -day within the company. 
there's a million other ways to make money in real estate. There's tons of other great asset classes that I believe in the core fundamentals of. Like I'd mentioned, I kind of outlined some ones I'm passively invested in today. And I just know that there is absolutely no way that we can ultimately become an expert at all things. And so there's plenty of other folks that are like us that stick to their own lane. And they've garnered that expertise over decades of experience and again, self-storage, multifamily. And so Putting, placing my capital with them allows me to diversify across multiple different asset classes, against, across multiple markets, across multiple operators without having to garner the day-to-day active expertise that it takes to run a completely different vertical, right? Like of there's course. a lot of similarities, but introducing another asset class into our active business saying, hey, we're going to start also buying medical office. Well, there's a ton to learn. And there's plenty of other people that have already blown past that initial stage and they're experts right. at it. They've been doing it long enough. They've gone through a few cycles. I'd rather just put my capital with them. The risk-adjusted returns are much better placing it in their hands than me trying to go at it alone. I think I would just add, you can, anyone can learn anything. It's just mm-hmm. the amount of effort and time it takes. That's right. Are you willing to spend that much? I don't think it takes tons of smartness to do what you and I do, but it takes time and effort. Time, time, uh, time, time that pulls you away from your core business, time that pulls you away from your family. Again, it depends on what support. Right. If you realize that you just love working 120 hours a week, you don't have family, like you, that's it. You're a workaholic and that's what drives you. Then maybe, maybe that's right for you, but it's yeah. <laughs> not so me. Tell us, uh, Kevin, tell us a little bit about uh, mobile home and parking, because those are two asset classes that you love the most right now. Not that you don't, don't love others. These are the ones that you actively manage. That's correct. Um, so help us understand why mobile homes and, of course, then why, what are the similarities? Why did you end up picking uh, parking? Are yeah, there similarities no, in the two assets? Are they completely different? Yeah, I mean, I'll answer that question first. You know, we look at both as somewhat of parking lots. Majority of mobile home parks that we own, the you know, the residents actually own the homes themselves, the mobile homes, right. and we own the infrastructure. We own the land, the infrastructure, you know, the common areas, and things of that nature. And they basically rent that spot from us. Although um, those units rarely ever move. About ninety-eight percent of units that leave a manufacturer or factory when they're built and make it to a mobile home park. They live and die in that mobile home park. Isn't that and, the funniest uh, part? It doesn't mean the, they die, but you know, they, the they could be around the, six uh, years. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I had to say that. Isn't that the funniest part of mobile homes? They're not mobile. Because they, most they are. It just costs a lot of money to move them, yeah. right? And um, HUD didn't get involved in the oversight and the regulatory uh, part of, of manufactured house building process until 1978. And so prior to that, if you actually have, a, you know, and mobile homes have been being built for since 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. And so there's lots of parks, especially here in Florida, where I live, Arizona and the Sunbelt states. There's lots of communities that have homes that are, you know, that were built prior to this 1978. And legally, they actually can't be moved. They can, they are right. not allowed to be on the road. They're not allowed to be mm-hmm. transported for one spot to the next. Uh, however, anything that has a HUD stamp of approval on it post-1978 can be moved. But even then, th- there's a fairly significant barrier to move it and its cost. Uh, you know, the right. average nowadays, the average, assuming you're going to move it in town to maybe 10, 15 miles away to a plot of land or to a different community, you know, the average single wide is going to cost you to actually break it down, move it, reset it, connect all utilities again. You're looking at $10,000. And right. You know, the demographic that we're typically serving is, you know, it's, it's affordable housing. It's folks that are blue collar workers that are making, you know, a minimum wage or maybe slightly greater than that. You know, they're a lot of times living paycheck to paycheck and very rarely would they ever have, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars sitting aside to, to move their home. And there's really no economic gain for them spending that amount of money to move that home. It's they're not going to recapture it anytime soon. In addition to that, you know, mobile homes are their personal property. So they're, they're depreciating assets. And so 
economically, it just doesn't make sense. Even if they had the wherewithal to do it, it just doesn't make sense to actually move a home from one spot to another. About the only time we ever see a home leave our community, uh, and it happens on a really rare occasions. And that's if, let's say that someone's been living there for 20 years, and a relative just happens to you know give them a piece of land out in the country you know right. that that's in a, you know a close proximity to where they're at and they say hey here's an acre for you it's actually zoned you're allowed to have a mobile home there there's already a septic and a well there have at it that's literally happened probably I can count on on, on two hands uh, out of the you know thousands of, of lots that we've owned that's happened so it happens very rarely got it. Yeah. So I, back to your original, your original question was like some of the similarities. Yeah. We look at them both as parking lots and mobile home parks. While mobile home parks are much more akin to that of a, they're multifamily. They are. I mean, it's just a different form of multifamily. But what we have found is that the residents tend to be a lot stickier and your reasons, many reasons, one of the big ones being just the, you know, the barrier of moving that home. And if they decide that they don't want to live in that community anymore, socket, it's very similar to that of if you live, if you own your home, mm-hmm. well, I want to move and move somewhere else. I'm going to put it up for sale. I'm going to wait for a qualified buyer to come buy it, but you got to continue paying your property taxes, your insurance and all that. Same thing goes there. They put their home up for sale. They continue paying the lot rent, um, all the other expenses associated with it. New buyer comes in, new buyer assumes the lot rent responsibility, you know, old person moves to their new home and uh, wherever that might be. And yeah. we very rarely ever have a hiccup in the income stream, which is a beautiful thing. And That's we've got amazing. residents that have lived in some of our communities for 40 plus years that we, that we, we accumulated, you know, we, we acquired when we bought the community, but right. 40 plus years. <laughs> now that's actually an amazing thing because there's so much stickiness, right? And then also you're yeah. adding value because I know there's uh, mobile homes sometimes get a bad rep that you end up becoming slumlords. But I, don't, I think yeah, in your case is very yeah. different, right? You're adding value to the community. You're making, you're improving their life. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate that mobile home parks kind of get lumped into one bucket and it's the, you know, the trashy bucket. And I always like to compare it to, you can go to any city, you know, but let's take Tampa where I'm based out of. Let's talk about single family home neighborhoods. There are plenty parts of town that have a really, really rough homes, Mm -hmm. like scary parts of home, dangerous, like drugs, sex, rock and roll, like all the bad stuff happening. Or different part of Tampa, we go and it's a very middle of the road, blue collar subdivisions, middle class, um, plenty of those. And they go to the other part of town and there's very nice subdivisions, you know, high end white collar uh, type, type type subdivisions. The same exists in mobile home parks. Uh, and there's really rough ones on the wrong side of tracks. There's middle of the road. And then there's, depending on the area that you're okay, located in, there's some really high end. They wouldn't even fit in the category of affordable housing. They're more lifestyle choices than anything. Mm. Folks choose to live there. Like here in Florida, there's a lot of lifestyle communities that they've got three tennis courts, four swimming pools, community oh, clubhouse, wow. and activities directors. And a lot of the folks that live there, it might be a second home. It might be their permanent resident, but they're not inexpensive. Uh, you know, there's, there's some parks right near me that have $1,400 a month lot rents. Wow. And that's, you, know, you own your home, you're paying $1,400 a month in lot rent and your home, you might've paid $150,000 for, right? And so that is not, it's by no means that's affordable cheap, housing. Yeah. And, you know, again, the same exists with apartment complex as well. You got low end, middle end, and high end as well. And, but unfortunately, mobile home parks all get lumped into that low they end do, bucket. They do. They <laughs> do. What is the reason why you're seeing? Because, you know, over the last few, several years, I've been hearing that, you know, Warren Buffett's buying mobile homes all over. It has seen a demand. The demand for the mobile homes has seemed to have gone up. So uh, is there a macro play that's, that's happening in the mobile, mobile home world that people are not necessarily aware of? Wait. 
Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, that's right. Ten years ago, it was kind of under the radar. You know, Warren Buffett does he own, he owns Clayton, um, and 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 so Clayton is the largest manufacturer in the country in the world of of, of uh, manufactured houses. You know, he's been in the space for quite some time. Sam Zell uh, owns Equity Lifestyle. Sam mm-hmm. Zell, you know, coined as one of the smartest investors of our time. Um, he's been in the space for uh, I think over twenty years now, and. I think up until about 10 years ago, it was just really under the radar. I don't know how else to put it. Similar to self-storage. Self-storage just really didn't get a lot of attention. Those that knew, knew, and those that didn't, didn't. And, you know, institutional investors, they looked at both those asset classes. They were, they're not sexy. There's, Mm -hmm. I mean, what's sexy about self-storage? You're buying garage space, right? Right. Like there's nothing, nothing inherently sexy about that. The same with mobile home parks, right? Especially since they're lumped, lumped into that, that garbage bucket, right? And, and I think that, over time, you know, investors, especially institutional investors, they they get forced to look for new avenues to to get outsized returns. And you know, sooner or later, mobile home parks became exposed as one of those particular assets. And and once it became exposed, once Blackstone came in and rolled out a fund of a billion dollars, I want to deploy it into the space. Others took notice, and ultimately, over the last five years, we've seen an accelerated roll up from multiple different institutionals, investors coming in and they're really consolidating the space. And so it's driven cap rates down, it's driven prices up, and you know, big barrier to entry in the space. And what's really causing this massive supply demand imbalance is that there's very few, if any, new communities being built. In fact, it's the only asset class that has a diminishing supply. And so there's more mobile mm-hmm. home parks across the country that either get redeveloped for higher and better use because they were maybe built 50 years ago in the outskirts of town. Now they're right. in the middle of path of progress, or that just simply gets shut down. There's a negative gain of new communities being built across the country. So you got this increased demand, low supply, you know, diminishing supply, and uh, it's just um, creating this massive imbalance. And so it's, it's great. You know, there's pros and cons of that. Seven years ago, if we wanted to sell a community. We add value to it. Our pool of buyers wasn't as sophisticated. And uh, we might not be able to garner the type of price point that we can today. However, on the front side buying, we might not have had as much competition. But now we got a lot more competition. But on the back end, when we go to sell, we've got institutional buyers that are lining up, willing to pay premium prices. And so there's pros and cons with different groups coming into the space, but it is a space that's got a limited runway. Again, right. with this no new supply coming on the market, once all the good parks are gone, doesn't mean they won't transact again, but once the space really gets consolidated, I don't think we'll find another time you know, in the next you know, 15, 20 years where there's going to be massive value add plays in good markets in the mobile home right. park space. Right. And you know, uh, Kevin, as people are evaluating mobile home, who to invest with, what are your, some of your criteria when you're buying mobile home parks? And uh, because, you know, in apartment complexes, we have certain metrics that we look into. Help us understand in the mobile home parks. Yeah, very similar to that of multifamily. You know, we want to be in growing markets that has, you know, employment diversity. We want to have a low unemployment rate. We want to have a our median household income. We're looking for 50000 a year plus a median household income. We will stretch a little bit wider as far as geographical targets uh, than, than that of what a lot of multifamily investors do. And the main reason is that there's limited supply. And so it's very challenging at this point in time for me to come and say, Socket, we're only going to buy in Atlanta, Georgia. And offhand, I don't know how many total mobile home parks are in Atlanta MSA, but let's just say there's 500 of them. Well, more than likely, a large number of those have already transacted, have been consolidated. The mom and pop owners are no longer around and there's a lot of institutional capital already there. And so 
in order to actually get a decent sized footprint in Atlanta, that'd be very, very challenging to do. It'd right. take a lot of time if, you know, if, if possible at all. And so we go to wherever the opportunity exists. But as far as size of the community itself, we want a hundred lots or larger is kind of our target. The bigger, the better. Very similar to that of multifamily. We, right. you know, we see efficiencies in scale and, uh, we're really only buying a market where we feel that we can actually garner a decent sized footprint once we acquire that first community. Ideally, we like to have, you know, 500 plus units in one particular market within 20, 30 minutes of one another so that we can, again, gain some scales of economy there. But those are some of the general criteria. But again, very, very similar to that of, of multifamily. We want to make sure that people have jobs, that people aren't moving away from the area, that employers aren't mm-hmm. moving out of that area. We want to know that the park's in a great part of town that good schools, even folks that are on limited budgets want their kids to go to the best schools. And so again, in an ideal scenario, we want the ugliest property in the best part of town. Again, of very similar to that yeah. of a, I want to buy the C minus class apartment complex, but in the B plus part of town, that is a perfect value add story. It aligns directly with our investment philosophy and is one that we found great success in pulling off. Awesome. And Kevin, in your case, kind of like, you know, when you compare your investments as a passive investor, into yes. a mobile home park, let's say a multifamily, right? Mm-hmm. Are they even comparable? Are they fair to compare the two? Are they similar? Are there is one you consider more risky than the other? How do you evaluate the two? Because you're also no, you know, no. I mean, again, a lot of similarities. I will say that our philosophy is slightly different than that of a lot of the multifamily investors. A lot of the deals that trade nowadays in multifamily, like there has to be an exit in order to hit mm-hmm. that target IRR. There's there has to be. You know, we're typically able to, I guess, to buy a lot of the parks that we buy with a little more meat in the bone so that we're not necessarily forced to exit out in a three to five year span. And so we've had great success with just doing a recap in a three to five year span and actually keeping our investors in the deal, getting all the original capital back, which over the long period of time will drive down the IRR, but overall will allow us to have infinite returns, infinite cash flow with the investors. So our investors, we typically look for the type of investors that are in more the, you know, they're okay with slower growth and, and wealth preservation stage mm-hmm. and that of those that need to hit a high double digit, knock it out of the park, IRRs every single time. We're much less IRR driven than that of a, a standard multifamily property is today. And I, that's probably the best comparison to maybe give you. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty of times that we've exited out in a three-year span after we've executed the business plan and knocked it out of the park with the IRRs. But Overall, more, returns are similar. Options, but... right? You have more exit options, which always helps. Yes, yes. Yeah. I think that makes sense. And I think one thing, so two things. One was you use the term recap. We have our theme of the show is no investor left behind. So recap is essentially refinancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fancy word for refinancing for my listeners. That's right. So I think the second thing is a few minutes ago, maybe I think it was a different question where you talked about it's a personal property, right? Mobile home. That's so, correct. So when you as a mobile home owner, or mobile park owner, I should say, not a mobile home, how does the tax depreciation work? Because, you know, in a multifamily, through cost segregation, you got a 5, 7, 15 and rest. But if mobile home is actually a personal asset, I know you're not a tax attorney or a tax accountant. Yeah. So in most cases, we don't own the mobile homes themselves. And so just talking about the actual, obviously you, you can't depreciate raw land, mm-hmm. but any mobile home community that we're purchasing, most of the time, we're not buying a mobile home park that's in the middle of town. Like it's not in the heart of Atlanta. It's on the outskirts where maybe the raw land value isn't all that substantial. And so what we have found is looking at the infrastructure, the water lines, the sewer lines, the curb stops, the asphalt, um, all those other improvements that, that, that exist within a mobile home park, 
allows them to be incredibly tax efficient. In fact, right. uh, we get cost cost studies done on every every park we buy, and on average, we're able to depreciate roughly about seventy percent of the overall purchase That's awesome. price. That's so. awesome. All right, Kevin. So we're going to shift the gear here. So we're going to go to the second part of our episode here. So you've done tremendously well in everything that you've tried to do, because I think you partly because you just have a great work ethic. I don't think you got lucky. You just work hard towards it. So help us understand if you were to go back to your 20 year old self and give them one insight into what has made your life migration path much easier or what could yeah. make it for them? What would that one insight be? Yeah, my answer is kind of cliche, but I wish I would have figured out the efficiencies of larger scale a lot sooner, not just from a management perspective, from a financing perspective, just from accomplishing larger life goal perspective. I look back and I see the amount of effort and energy it took me to acquire all those single family homes. Again, I didn't right. have a, a wife, I didn't have kids. I enjoyed what I was doing. I enjoyed grinding, right? Like now everyone kind of brags about grinding. I think that's a joke. I think they need to figure out a more efficient way to run their life, what they need to do. And so just, I wish I would have figured that out. I figured it out. I feel like I figured it out, you know, soon, but not soon enough. And I'm very grateful for the path that was shown to me because I wouldn't be where I'm at today if it wasn't for that. But I wish I would have learned some of those efficiencies of, of larger scale much sooner than I did. Yeah. And what do you think, Kevin, prevents people to go uh, big instead of, you know, fear. buying a duplex fear. versus fear? I, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I think everyone everyone visualizes fear in a different way and they um, they create their own image of what that looks like in their in their own brain and, and, and maybe what that worst case scenario might look like. And I think most people just uh, exaggerate whatever yeah. that worst case scenario might be. I'm always open-minded. It just had not been exposed to me. I'm always been very open-minded about different types of opportunities and just keeping my, you know, my mindset free to expand. You know, when an idea presented itself, mm -hmm. some people are not that way. Um, just for me, it never it had not presented itself soon enough, and so I wish it would have. But I think others it might be presented to them, and they just they conjure up this fear, this image of just yeah. you know death and losing my house. I die if this doesn't go right. And normally that's just not the case. I like to go through a little exercise in my brain of kind of the worst case scenario. Ask yourself, what is the worst case scenario if this deal goes sideways? First, like seven or eight answers that you actually give yourself or not even not remotely right. close, yeah. you know, like they're, yeah. they're so over-exaggerated of what a true worst case scenario is. If you continue to drill down and be honest with yourself, what you'll probably find is that you'll arrive at like a real world and maybe you need a third party perspective to help you kind of go through this exercise. You'll, you'll arrive at what a real world uh, worst case scenario is and probably realize that it's nearly as bad as what you thought. And it's probably yeah. worth maybe taking the risk if the opportunity presents itself. No, I agree. Cause I remember, you know, just kind of reflecting back on my own experience when I shifted from a single family to multifamily, my limiting belief, and I, I distinctly remember it only rich people can buy apartments and I don't have That's the right. money. Right. And, but once I was exposed to the world of syndication, the whole world just complete, all my limiting beliefs collapsed. Because now, to your point about it being exposed in a third-party conversation helps. Because if you're yeah. only talking to yourself, you're only talking to yourself with a mental model that's true for you, which is your own blueprint. And there's not yeah. a lot of flexibility. I think it's also the circle you surround yourself with in that you know, if, if you're only around others that are doing exactly what you're doing today and you, you right. hope to do bigger things, and again, like it's so foreign that that's scary in and of itself. I mean, think about where you, both of you and I are at today, right? Like to us, we're doing big deals. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're doing multi-billion dollar, multi-phase deals. And to me, I wouldn't say it's scary, but it's overwhelming to think yeah. about. It's so very different. It's such a different world 
than the world I'm living in today. And so if I so chose to want to go down that path, at least I have a better direction where to go. I need to start surrounding myself with those billionaires that are doing these multi-billion dollar projects. And again, I think just putting yourself in the right circle, really fighting to get into that right circle around those that are not doing what you're doing today, but those that are being successful at where you want to be here in the future. Correct. Correct. What do they say? You are the sum of the five people that you That's surround, it, surround people. yourself with. Really, you got to figure out who you spend your time with. So Kevin, the second question there is, um, if we go to higher perspective as in, what is your wish and desire to humanity to migrate intentionally towards? Just to be kind to one another. I feel like there's so much separation in this country with politics and um, everything that's been going on over the last, it's more than just last, you know, three, four years. It's just, uh, I see a lot of divide happening in the country and it's unfortunate to see. And I know it's so simple, but it's so seemingly difficult at the same time, but just be kind to one another, right? You know, have, have empathy, have a heart, be willing to help the next person in line and, and help them get a leg up. And I think by having that mentality, I think we all grow into bigger, better people and uh, all find ourselves in a, just a much better place in life. Yeah, no, I think very well said. It's actually, uh, I, I think I go back to your previous question, which is all about, you know, limited beliefs is because we don't want to help people or we can't be kind because of our own limited beliefs. We're not exposed right. to different ideas. And the more you talk to people who are different than you, doesn't mean they're That's better right. than you or worse than you or different than you. Your view of the world could completely be opened up. It's, you, you're going to start looking at things very differently. Yep, so Kevin, I, agree. I completely agree. And thank you again for these amazing insights and a peek into your life. That said, Kevin, uh, where can people find you? Yeah, I mean, you can find me on all the different social media channels. But if you want to learn, you know, what I'm doing on a personal level, maybe, you know, listen to the podcast. I've got a couple of podcasts I host, one primarily that's focused on commercial real estate. I've been doing it for like nine years. You can go over to my personal website, kevinbuff.com. If you want to get a sense of what we're doing in the mobile home park and, and the parking space from an investment perspective, you can visit our company website at investwithsunrise.com. And then Socket, I would love if you wouldn't mind. I published a book back in April of this year. Would love to to give a free copy to all your listeners if you wouldn't let's mind me that. sharing. Yeah, please okay. let's do that. If you guys want a free copy of my recent book, it's Cash Flow Investor: How to Create Financial Freedom Investing in Commercial Real Estate. Uh, launched it back in April. You can either go spend uh, twenty dollars on a copy on Amazon or go to kevinbupp.com forward slash free book. Again, kevinbupp.com forward slash free book, and you can grab yourself a free copy of that. So. Great. I would highly encourage everyone to go avail that opportunity. I have that book already and I did spend $20 or whatever it cost it on Amazon because <laughs> you, I wasn't smart you. enough. Yeah. That's awesome. So um, I would highly encourage. So we'll include all this information in the show notes below, Kevin, so that folks can reach out to you and kind of connect with you. Well, right. with that, Kevin, thank you again for being on the show. Really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man, but yeah. thank you. It's been a lot of fun, Saga. Thanks for having me, and thanks for all that you do for educating folks out there and taking the time and energy and resources to do this show. Awesome, buddy. Cheers. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.